When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, friend. Welcome back to Foul Play. The Maryland Attorney General's investigation into child abuse in the Archdiocese of Baltimore resulted in a 463-page document. This huge report lays out the investigation's findings, but I can't help but wonder if the Archdiocese of Baltimore was horrified or happy when they saw that it was such a long document. At face value, when you hear how many pages it is, you know how much shady business and wrongdoing was printed. But on the other hand, I wonder if they might have been slightly relieved that it was such a long document, thinking that most people won't have the time to sit down and read it. I experienced this today at the library. I was looking for a book on one of my favorite historical events. There were two books. One was a huge book that I knew I would never be able to get through, and the other was, well, let's just say a step above a picture book. I think you know which book I came home with. That experience today got me thinking. How many people have not opened the document simply because of how large it is. You can rely on newspapers to report on bits and pieces, summarizing a 463-page document into a quick read, only to a certain point. So, I'm sitting down now to read through parts of the report with you. I'm going to pick a couple short stories from the priest abuse section so the majority will be from the beginning of the report, which will help you walk away with a better understanding of the Attorney General's findings in their own words. A quick warning to survivors. 
this could be triggering. I'm going to read straight from the Attorney General's report, and it will describe abuse and how it was covered up. So be prepared ahead of time if you continue to listen. So let's get started. In 2018, the Maryland Office of the Attorney General launched a grand jury investigation into the Archdiocese of Baltimore, examining criminal allegations of child sexual abuse by clergy, seminarians, deacons, and employees of the Archdiocese. The Office of the Attorney General also set out to investigate efforts by the leadership of the Catholic Church to hide sexual abuse. The Grand Jury of Baltimore City issued subpoenas to the Archdiocese, as well as to individual parishes, religious orders, and St. Mary's Seminary. Hundreds of thousands of documents dating back to the 1940s were produced in response to the subpoenas, including treatment reports, personnel reports, transfer reports, and policies and procedures. Additionally, the Office of the Attorney General created an email address and telephone hotline for persons to report information about clergy abuse. Over 300 people contacted the office, and Office of the Attorney General investigators reached out and interviewed hundreds of victims and witnesses. Many of those who came forward had told their story before. Some came forward for the first time. The incontrovertible history uncovered by this investigation is one of pervasive and persistent abuse by priests and other archdiocese personnel. It is also a history of repeated dismissal or cover-up of that abuse by the Catholic Church hierarchy. While every victim's story is unique, together they reveal themes and behaviors typical of adults who sexually abuse children and of those who enable abuse by concealing it. What was consistent throughout was the absolute authority and power these abusive priests and church leadership held over victims, their families, and their communities. Abusers often singled out children who were especially isolated or vulnerable because of shyness, lack of confidence, or problems at home, and they presented themselves as protectors and friends of the children and their families. Abusers preyed upon the children, most devoted to the church, the altar servers and choir members, those who participated in church youth organizations and the scout troops, and especially those who worked in the rectories, answering telephones in the evenings and on the weekends. They groomed the victims with presence and special attention. They told the victims the abuse was God's will and that no one would doubt the word of a priest. Some threatened that the victim or victim's family would go to hell if they told anyone. They attempted to normalize sexual behavior as roughhousing. When confronted, they denied the behavior if plausible. 
If denial was impossible, they would minimize the extent of the abuse and describe it as a weakness or aberrant. Until recent decades, church officials who received complaints of abuse behaved no better. Time and again, bishops and other leaders in the church displayed empathy for the abusers that far outweighed any compassion showed to the children who were abused. These leaders repeatedly accepted the word of abusers over that of victims and their families. They conflated pedophilia with alcoholism or other substance use disorders, and they exhibited a misplaced reliance on treatment. When, quote, investigations were conducted, they were done by clergy, who were neither trained as investigators nor independent of the church. These investigators typically questioned only the victim and abuser and made little or no attempt to seek cooperation or evidence of additional victims. They afforded the abuser's denial equal or greater weight than the victim's allegations. In some cases, where even the most inadequate of investigations revealed undeniable abuse, the archdiocese removed the abuser from the parish, but gave either no reason or a false reason for the removal. In many cases, the abuser was transferred, often multiple times, to another parish without warning to parishioners of the prior abuse. This report seeks to document this long and sordid history. Unfortunately, most of the abusers and those who concealed their wrongdoing are dead and no longer subject to prosecution. While stories of this abuse have been documented by victims, advocacy groups, investigative journalists, and others, we hope to make public for the first time the enormous scope and scale of abuse and concealment perpetrated by the Archdiocese of Baltimore. While it may be too late for the victims to seek criminal justice served, we hope that exposing the Archdiocese's transgressions to the fullest extent possible will bring some measure of accountability. The Office of the Attorney General has included in this report every current or former Catholic clergy member, seminarian, deacon, member of a Catholic religious order, or other employee of the Archdiocese who has been the subject of credible allegations of child sexual abuse in Maryland known to this office. In deciding whether to include an alleged abuser, the Office of the Attorney General relied upon records received in response to its grand jury subpoena to the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Statements of victims and witnesses who wished to be interviewed and materials already in the public record. In some instances, the only evidence available was the records provided by the Archdiocese. The report includes persons never assigned to the Archdiocese of Baltimore, but the focus is on the priests, deacons, sisters, and non-clerical employees for whom the Archdiocese of Baltimore had some oversight 
or simply had records related to their abuse. The report is comprehensive with regards to members of the clergy, and also includes a number of non-clerical abusers, like John Mersbacher, to demonstrate that the secrecy and cover-up was not limited to clergy. Based on our review of this evidence, we have included 156 abusers determined to have been the subject of credible allegations of abuse. We have also included at the end of this report a list of priests and other personnel who served in some capacity or resided within the Archdiocese of Baltimore but were listed as credibly accused in connection with child sexual abuse outside of Maryland. We have indicated to the extent we can ascertain when and where the abuse took place and the diocese and or order that has listed them as credibly accused. This report details decades of criminal conduct. The individuals and institutions documented in this report preyed upon and harmed vulnerable children. In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey, as someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. The Diocese of Baltimore has enjoyed a special prominence in the history of the Roman Catholic Church in America. The city of Baltimore was the first seat of the United States Catholic Church, removed from the authority of the English Catholic Church, and in 1789, the Diocese of Baltimore became the first diocese established in the United States. John Carroll of Maryland was the first American bishop, and in 1808, the Pope made Baltimore an archdiocese. Until that year, when the Pope also created the diocese of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Bardstown, the entire United States Catholic Church existed within the Baltimore diocese. Although additional dioceses were created over the next century, As the country grew, both geographically and demographically, the Baltimore Archdiocese 
retained a primacy within the hierarchy of the church. The Archdiocese of Baltimore does not encompass the entirety of the state. In addition to the city, it includes nine counties in central and western Maryland. The criminalization of child sexual abuse in Maryland has a complicated history, made even more so by evolving understanding of what constitutes abuse and the applicability of statutes of limitation, legal obligations to report suspected abuse have also evolved over time. Maryland passed its first law explicitly criminalizing child abuse in 1963. It provided that any parent, adoptive parent, or other person who has the permanent or temporary care or custody of a minor child under the age of 14 years, who maliciously beats, strikes, or otherwise mistreats such minor child to such degree as to require medical treatment for such child, shall be guilty of a felony. The law did not differentiate between sexual abuse and other types of physical abuse, required injury sufficient to need medical treatment, and carried a maximum penalty of 15 years incarceration. In 1964, it was expanded to apply to children up to 16 years of age and to apply to anyone with responsibility for the supervision of the child. In 1973, they eliminated the medical treatment requirement and made the statute applicable to children up to age 18. In 1974, the statute finally made clear that it included sexual abuse, which it defined as any act or acts involving sexual molestation or exploitation, including but not limited to incest, rape, carnal knowledge, sodomy, or unnatural or perverted sexual practices on a child. In 1978, it was amended again to include neglect. Application of the law was still limited to any parent, adoptive parent, or other person who has the permanent or temporary care or custody or responsibility for supervision of a minor child. In 1991, that definition was expanded to include any household or family member. In 2003, child sexual abuse and other forms of physical child abuse were divided into separate statutes. The maximum penalty for sexual child abuse was increased from 15 years to 25 years incarceration. The definition of sexual abuse found in the Child Sexual Abuse Statute has remained largely unchanged since 1991. Sexual abuse is defined as an act that involves sexual molestation or exploitation of a minor, whether physical injuries are sustained or not, and includes but is not limited to incest, rape, sexual offense in any degree, and unnatural or perverted sexual practices. Prior to 1976, rape was a common law offense, 
punishable by no less than 18 months in prison, and no more than life in prison. Common law rape is typically defined as the act of a man having unlawful carnal knowledge of a female over the age of 10 years by force without the consent and against the will of the victim. Another statute was the precursor to the crime commonly known as statutory rape. The statute made it a misdemeanor, punishable by up to two years in jail. For an adult male to carnally know any female, not his wife, between the ages of 14 and 16 years. Before 1976, other types of sexual offenses could only be prosecuted as general assault or under the sodomy or unnatural and perverted practices statutes. In 1976, the General Assembly created the crimes of first and second degree rape and first through fourth degree sex offense. Rape was defined as vaginal intercourse by force or threat of force without consent. First degree rape included the presence of an aggravating factor, including the use of a deadly weapon, the infliction or threat of serious physical injury, or where the victim was under 14 years old and the perpetrator was more than four years older than the victim. Second-degree rape included rape without the presence of aggravating factors and vaginal intercourse with a person who is mentally defective, mentally incapacitated, or physically helpless. First-degree rape was punishable by life in prison, while second-degree rape carried a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. Third- and fourth-degree sex offense prohibited engaging in a sexual contact with another against the will and without the consent of the other. Sexual contact was defined as the intentional touching of any part of the victim's or actor's anal or genital areas or other intimate parts for purposes of sexual arousal or abuse and included digital penetration. Third-degree sex offenses included engaging in sexual contact with the same aggravating factors as first-degree rape and first-degree sex offense, engaging in sexual contact with someone who is mentally defective and mentally incapacitated or physically helpless, or engaging in sexual contact with someone who is under 14 years old if the perpetrator is more than four years older than the victim. Third-degree sex offense was punishable by up to 10 years in prison. Fourth-degree sex offense prohibited engaging in sexual contact with someone against their will and without their consent or engaging in a sexual act or vaginal intercourse with someone 14 or 15 years old if the perpetrator is four years older than the victim and was punishable by up to one year in prison. All rape and sex offense statutes were felonies, except for fourth-degree sex offense, which was a misdemeanor. In 2006, the General Assembly revised third-degree sex offense to include someone over the age of 21 engaging in a sexual act or vaginal intercourse 
with a person who is 14 or 15 years old. Also in 2006, the General Assembly added to fourth-degree sex offense a prohibition against a person in a position of authority engaging in a sexual act, sexual contact, or vaginal intercourse with a minor who is a student at a school where the person in a position of authority is employed. A person of authority is defined as a person over the age of 21 who is employed by a private or public school and exercises supervision over a minor who attends the school. Generally, Maryland has no statute of limitations for felonies. This means that crimes such as murder, rape, and child sexual abuse can be prosecuted at any time after they occur. The state is bound, however, to the law as it existed when the conduct occurred. So, for example, if a crime was not a felony at the time it was committed, the applicable misdemeanor statute of limitations, typically a year, applies. Likewise, if the conduct did not meet the elements of the criminal statutes at the time that it occurred, it cannot be prosecuted, even if it is a crime under current law. This complicates the prosecution of historical child sexual abuse in several ways. First, As explained above, although the crime of rape has always been a felony, regardless of the age of the victim, its definition has historically been limited to vaginal penetration by a penis. All other forms of child sexual abuse were not felonies under Maryland law until the 1960s, when the crime of felony child abuse was created by statute and some sexual offenses did not become felonies until 1976, when the sex offense statutory scheme was enacted. In 1964, the General Assembly enacted a requirement that all physicians who treat a child under the age of 14 and observe signs of abuse must report to the local police department or Maryland State Police. In 1966, the reporting requirement was extended to all health practitioners, teachers, social workers, and law enforcement, and the age that triggers reporting was increased from 14 to 16. In 1973, the law was expanded again to require any person who has reason to believe a child is being abused to report it to law enforcement. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Maryland's current reporting requirements impose a duty to report on any person who has a reason to believe that a child has been subjected to abuse or neglect. The statute provides exceptions for information protected by the attorney-client privilege and for information provided to a priest of an established church if made during confession or otherwise confidential under canon law or church doctrine. No such exceptions apply to the duty of health practitioners, police officers, educators, or human service workers acting in a professional capacity. In 1993, the Office of the Attorney General issued an opinion stating that the reporting requirements under the family law apply even when a victim is no longer a child or an abuser is no longer alive. Prior to 1993, the archdiocese generally did not make reports of abuse to authorities if the victim was an adult the time the archdiocese learned of the abuse. As the case descriptions in this report make clear, from the 1940s through 2002, over a hundred priests and other archdiocese personnel engaged in horrific and repeated abuse of the most vulnerable children in their communities, while archdiocese leadership looked the other way. Time and again, members of the church's hierarchy resolutely refused to acknowledge allegations of child sexual abuse for as long as possible. When denial became impossible, church leadership would remove abusers from the parish or school, sometimes with promises that they would have no further contact with children. Church documents reveal, with disturbing clarity, that the archdiocese was more concerned with avoiding scandal and negative publicity than it was with protecting children. The staggering pervasiveness of the abuse itself underscores the culpability of the church hierarchy. The sheer number of abusers and victims, the depravity of the abuser's conduct, and the frequency with which known abusers were given the opportunity to continue preying upon children are astonishing. Over 600 children are known to have been abused by 156 people included in this report, but the number is likely far higher. 
The way in which abusers preyed upon their victims varied widely, but all took advantage of the position of authority and respect afforded priests and other clergy in Catholic communities. Parents often gave priests unfettered access to their children because they trusted clergy as spiritual leaders and men of virtue. A victim of Henry O'Toole described what an honor it was to be selected to work in the rectory on Sundays and how proud her family was. When she was alone with him in the rectory, he opened her shirt and fondled her. In the aftermath of her divorce, a victim's mother returned to Jerome Tui to provide support and counsel to her son. Tui proceeded to sexually abuse the boy for three years. John Wilepski was another priest who sexually abused children who came to him for counseling. Chillingly, one of his victims was sent to Wilepski because of earlier sexual abuse. Robert Hopkins preyed upon an altar boy who volunteered to open the rectory in the mornings and assist with the Mass. Hopkins was so trusted by the family that the victim's parents let their son sleep overnight at the rectory. Hopkins raped him for five years. One of the most distressing aspects of the abuse is the frequency with which abusers continued their behavior even after victims came forward or concerns were raised. Lawrence Brett admitted in 1964 to the Bridgeport Diocese that he sexually abused and assaulted a boy when he was in Connecticut. He was sent to, quote, treatment in New Mexico, where he continued to abuse children and then came to the Archdiocese of Baltimore. He was placed at Calvert Hall, a boys' school. He abused over 20 boys in Maryland after 1964. Joseph Maskell was moved from two parishes in the 1960s because of reports of troubling behavior with children, including a fascination with the sexual fantasies and behavior of Boy Scouts and having young girls in the rectory under suspicious circumstances. Not only were the reports by multiple parents not investigated, reported to authorities, or publicized, he was assigned to be chaplain at Archbishop Keough High School, an all-girls school. Maskell sexually abused at least 39 victims. Walter Emila is another priest who continued to abuse children after victims came forward. He was banished from what became the Diocese of Memphis in 1968. After multiple reports of child abuse were made, he came to the Archdiocese of Baltimore and abused at least six boys in Maryland, as well as others in Pennsylvania. The duration and scope of the abuse perpetrated by Catholic clergy was only possible because of the complicity of those charged with leading the church and protecting its faithful. Leaders of the archdiocese repeatedly dismissed reports of abuse and exhibited little to no concern for victims. They failed to adequately investigate complaints and made no effort 
to identify other victims or corroborate alleged abuse. They transferred known abusers to other positions of equal authority and access to children. They focused not on protecting victims or stopping the abuse, but rather on ensuring at all costs that the abuse must be kept hidden. The costs and consequences of avoiding scandal were borne by the victimized children. Examples abound. In 1968, Cardinal Sheehan received a letter from a distraught father accusing a parish priest, Albert Julian, of sexually abusing his daughter and demanding that Julian be removed. Julian not only admitted having abused the man's daughter, but also confessed to an uncontrollable attraction to young girls and to yielding to temptation from time to time. The archdiocese did not report the abuse, did not seek out other victims, and did nothing to assist the known victim. Rather, the archdiocese quietly got Julian psychiatric treatment and reassigned him to desk work and part-time parish work of a kind where he would not be exposed to temptation. And two years later, Cardinal Sheehan supported Julian's request to be laicized so that he could be entered into a valid marriage and live as a good lay Catholic. Decades later, in 2002, a woman reported being abused by Julian in the 1960s and knew of at least one other victim who was the victim whose father had first accused Julian. Only then did the archdiocese report the abuse to law enforcement. In another example, the archdiocese learned as early as 1987 that Brother Thomas Rokaswitz had sexually abused a 14-year-old girl in around 1980, and he admitted to being aroused by some young girls. The response by the church was to tell the victim that Brother Thomas would get therapy and would be reassigned away from children. There is no indication that the archdiocese took any steps to discover additional victims or report him to law enforcement until additional victims came forward in 1994. During the intervening seven years, Brother Thomas continued his ministry. Ultimately, nine women reported that he abused them at St. Michael Church in Baltimore and Our Lady of Perpetual Help in Ellicott City in the 1970s and 1980s, when they were between six and 15 years old. And there were indications of additional victims who chose not to report. Even in some of the rare instances, when sexual abuse was prosecuted, the judicial system and the press colluded with the church to avoid transparency and accountability. In 1958, Father Gerald Trigesser was prosecuted for sexually abusing a 13-year-old girl. In letters to fellow priests, Archbishop Keogh pointedly referred to one of the victim's parents as a non-Catholic and criticized them for violently pressing charges and demanding a public trial. Archbishop Keogh reported that, with the help of some excellent Catholic laymen, 
the case was resolved privately in the chambers of the chief judge of the circuit court for Baltimore County. When the victim's mother tried to expose the abuse to the press, Archbishop Keogh wrote that the prolonged and extremely careful negotiations and the happy influence of a highly placed newspaper man prevented the story from being printed. Archbishop Keogh wrote to the judge and promised that Tregressor would attend a treatment center and would not return to Maryland. If he were allowed to return to the priesthood, the archbishop said, it would be in some ecclesiastical jurisdiction in or near New Mexico. The judge agreed that the interests of society and of justice would be best served by this deposition and described his relationship with Catholic clergy as extremely cordial. Tegresser was reassigned to the Diocese of Salt Lake City less than a year later. The letter reassigning Tegresser described him as having girl trouble and said the reassignment was to give him a fresh start. Tegresser remained a priest for another 17 years. In 1987, Father Robert Newman admitted to sexually abusing 12 boys between ages 9 to 15 over a 15-year period, describing over 100 acts of abuse. Newman resigned from his parish, but the church said it was for reasons of health and did not disclose the abuse to Newman's parishioners. The diocese reported Newman to law enforcement, but the police report reflects only one instance of abuse with one victim. There is no indication that the archdiocese shared with law enforcement the full scope of Newman's admitted abuse. Newman received treatment in lieu of prosecution. The head of the sex crimes unit of the state's attorney's office said she was not inclined to prosecute and sees the value of trying to keep a man like this in ministry. After a few months of treatment, Newman returned to active ministry in the Archdiocese of Hartford, Connecticut, where he was a priest for 12 more years. It was not until 2002 that Newman's abuse was made public and he left active ministry. Many additional examples of the Archdiocese's complicity in facilitating and perpetuating child sexual abuse within its ranks may be found in the individual case descriptions that follow. That is where I will stop reading the Attorney General report. At page 12, there are 451 pages left, outlining in detail horrible accounts of adults raping and fondling children, all while officials in power at the Archdiocese of Baltimore, in many cases, took steps that resulted in them victimizing more children. As I let you go, I'm reminded of a comment Sean Kane told me during an interview on a previous episode, where he represented the Archdiocese of Baltimore. He said if Home Depot had employees abusing children, would people hold Home Depot accountable? Well, Mr. Kane, if Home Depot ever had a report like this out, 
detailing half of the horrendous things the company allowed to happen. I'm not so sure Marilyn would allow them to operate in their state any longer. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.